morning we want to pay a visit to the potter's house. So we want to go to Jeremiah chapter 18. Jeremiah chapter 18. And we'll read from verse 1 to verse 6 only. The word which came to Jeremiah from the Lord, saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause you to hear my words. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something at the wheel. And the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. And so he made it again into another vessel, as it seemed good to the potter to make. Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, O house of Israel, can I not do with you as this potter, says the Lord? Look, as the clay is in the potter's hand, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Jeremiah 18 is a wonderful story of hope. Aren't you glad that God doesn't put us on the scrap heap whenever he finds a flaw in us? A bruised reed shall he not break, and smoking flax shall he not quench. It's a wonderful story of patience. God is ever patient with us, isn't he? All of our life he has been patient. He's been waiting on us. Sent his Holy Spirit to come to us to woo us and to win us to Him. Philippians 1 and 6, Paul says, He who has begun a good work in us will complete it unto the day of Jesus Christ. Christ is the author and He's the finisher of our faith. Remember that little song with the little chorus that the children used to love to sing and it's good for adults too by Joel Hemphill. He's still working on me. Remember, many people remember that little song. To make me what I ought to be. It took him just a week to make the moon and the stars, the sun and the earth, and Jupiter and Mars. Oh, how loving and patient he must be, for he's still working on me. Many people remember that. Many people remember the verses. Verses are good. There really ought to be a sign upon the heart. Don't judge me yet. There's an unfinished part. But I'll be perfect just according to his plan fashioned by the Master's loving hands. In the mirror of His Word, reflections that I see make me wonder why He never gave up on me. He loves me as I am and helps me when I pray. Remember, He's the potter, I'm the clay. He's still working on me. He's still working on you, isn't He? I'm glad He's still working on me. He's got a lot to work on. It's a wonderful story of possibilities. As long as you are in the hand of the potter, as long as you're pliable, as long as you are on the wheel, then He can make you anew. As long as you yield to the hands of Christ, those nail-scarred hands that we talked about last week, as long as we're willing and yielding to Him and, and pliable enough for Him to, to work at, then He can make us anew. You remember what He prayed over Jerusalem when He wept? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often would I have gathered you as a hand does gather her chicks under his wings, but you would not. Therefore your house is left unto you desolate. If only they had been willing. If we submit ourselves and humble ourselves 
under the mighty hand of God, then he will exalt us in due season. The clay was marred in the hand of the potter. Not by the hand of the potter, but in the hand of the potter. The flaw was in the clay. And the potter was going to fix the flaw. He was going to cure the cause. He could easily make it again into another vessel. Let me show you something. Maybe, David, you could maybe get a close-up of this. I have in my hand a Tyrone Crystal full-lead 10-ounce tumbler. And if I hold it up and show you that, from where you're sitting, it looks pretty good. It looks pretty normal. It looks like any other Tyrone glass crystal 10-ounce tumbler. But if you were as close to it as I am, and if you were looking really closely, you could see that it was full of flaws. These perpendicular lines that are going up, cut into the glass, not all of them are the same length. Some are longer than others. Some are deeper than others. Some are shallower than others. And these crisscross lines, again, if you were to look at them, you'd see that they're not symmetrical. They're, some are long, some are short, some are thin, some are thick. In fact, the only place that looks half decent is the bottom bit that you can't see very much unless you're holding upside down and looking at it. It's pretty good, but the rest of it, it's obvious that that was not cut by a master glassmaker. In fact, if you look at it closely, it wasn't even cut by an apprentice glassmaker. It was by a rank absolute amateur. In fact, the person who cut this glass, that was the first glass they ever cut, and it was the last glass they ever cut. So no wonder it's full of mistakes and flaws. How do I know that? Because I'm the person that cut it. I'm the person that did that. So now it doesn't look too bad. Sure it doesn't. Eh? <laughs> At least to me anyway. Sally and I was in a, uh, in a mall one day. And I forget which one it was, but it was many years ago. We saw a crowd in the middle of the mall. And being nosy beans as we are, we went over to see what everybody was looking at. And there was a man on a wheel with a diamond cutter. And he was cutting beautiful crystal and he was an absolute expert. And he made it look so easy. And so we're all standing around for five or ten minutes watching him. And then suddenly he stopped and he said, Anybody want to go? And you could visibly see everybody back and back. And old Muggsy here says, I'll have a go. Step forward, sir, he said. And he put the apron on. And he gave me a little demo on a, on a blank piece of glass. And he says, well, watch me carefully. Now, it's not as easy as you may think. Not as easy, I thought, either. Because the, wheel, the, the diamond wheel, actually, you're looking through the glass and the diamond wheel's at the back of the glass. So it's not as if you're cutting it here. You have to look through the glass and see it from the back. So that's why some of these are deeper than others. And of course, the bottom of the glass is very thick. That's about a centimeter thick. But as you come up the glass, it gets to about a millimeter thick and you actually you could cut right through the glass because the diamond cutter is very, very sharp. So he gave me a little demo or two. He says, right now, I'll guide you through it. Now, he didn't put his hands on my hands. He said, I'll guide you through it. Have a go. 
And after it was done, I thought, well, he'll throw that in the bin. And he said, give me your name and address. He says, and we'll send it on to you. And so he took it, and they polished it, and they washed it, and they sent it in a little case about two or three weeks later. And there it is. Now, the point in telling you that story is that every one of those flaws, and there are several of them, every one of them was my fault. I couldn't blame anybody else but me. The glass cutter didn't touch that glass once he reached it to me. So all mistakes, all faults are mine. I have to hold my... I marred that glass, not the glass cutter. It was me. And the potter here was the same. The flaw, whatever the flaw was, it wasn't his fault. It was in the clay. So let's look and see this morning just for a little bit what kind of vessel was on the potter's wheel. It was a ruined vessel. Even though I thought I didn't make a bad job of that, but actually an expert looking at it say, that's a right fist somebody made of that. And they wouldn't use it. Certainly you wouldn't sell that into Rome Crystal, too, you wouldn't. It was a ruined vessel. But it became a renewed vessel. He made it again, verse 4, another vessel. Many a man or a woman was ruined, but by God's help and grace they became renewed or restored. Bartimaeus the beggar was a ruined man. Life had kicked him to the curb. He was literally sitting every day on the footpath of life, begging for a few coins to get a crust to eat. That's what life had reduced him to. He was a ruined man. Nothing to support his family. Probably lost his job. Beggars in those days had no handouts, no help, other than anybody along the road who took pity on him. That was all they had. He was a ruined man. But when Christ came along and touched him and opened his eyes, he was a renewed man. He was a restored man. I can imagine going home that day, seeing, maybe hadn't seen for years. Who knows, maybe he was blind from birth, maybe never worked a day in his life. But I can imagine going home to his mother or father, maybe even his wife and children, maybe, if he had any. And suddenly they had a new father or a new son or a new brother in their family. He was a renewed man. The prodigal son was ruined. The Bible says when he went into the far country that he wasted his substance with riotous living. His whole inheritance within a very short space of time was gone. He blew the lot and he was stony broke. Times were so bad he couldn't even get a job. And when he eventually found a job, guess what it was? Feeding the pigs. Not a job for a Jew boy, is it? Feeding those swine. And in fact, he was so hungry he would eat the pigs' food. But the owner of the pigs wouldn't even allow him to eat their food. That's how bad things got. Until he went back to the father's house. And of course, when he went back to the father's house, he became a renewed son. This, my son, was dead, but now he is alive. Jacob the deceiver was ruined. He lied to his brother. He lied to his old father. He was a deceiver. That's what he was. The heel grabber, the deceiver. 20 years 
He spent away from home. Never did see his mother again. His dear mother that he loved so much, who loved him so much, he thought he'd just be at Uncle Laban's house for a few weeks until his brother cooled off. That few weeks turned into 20 odd years. The time he came back, his mother was long since dead. What could God do with a deceiver, with a cheat, with a liar? God renewed him. And God turned him into a prince. Israel, a prince with God. Peter was a ruined man, wasn't he? He was embarrassed. He was humiliated. He had delighted his Lord, not just once, not even twice, but three times in front of everybody. He was a card. After all of his boasting, he was just a big card. And he knew it. And he was so ashamed and so humiliated, he was ruined. How could God ever use him? He would go back to fishing again. It was the only thing he knew. But aren't you glad that the potter can renew us and he can restore us? And the world had written over all of their lives, ruined. But God struck it out and he wrote, renewed, restored, remade. Fanaya used to sing a song years ago, Mercy Rewrote My Life. Remember that, Fanaya? That used to be a favorite song in here, wasn't it? And that's been the testimony of all of us, in fact, that mercy rewrote all of our lives, didn't it? We were ruined, but God remade us. And Satan may have written ruined over your life, over your home, over your family, over your business, over your prospects, over your body, over your health, over your future. But God can strike it out and write renewed, restored, remade. The vessel was marred, but the potter mended it. For some part of your life that's marred today, the potter can mend it. It was a useless vessel, but it became a useful vessel. Philemon was a Christian businessman, a very wealthy man. He was a personal friend of the Apostle Paul. He had lots of servants and slaves. One of them, Onesimus, stole something from his master and ran off. Horrible, terrible thing to do to a man that was good to him, a godly man. But when he ran off and he got to the big city, lo and behold, we don't know how it happened, but lo and behold, there he met Paul who was a prisoner. And Paul led him to Christ. And Paul really was desperate to have him now as a companion, as a young helper. But he couldn't do it without the say-so of his friend Philemon. And so he wrote a lovely little letter, the shortest letter that Paul ever wrote in the New Testament. You'll find it there. And he wrote it to his friend Philemon. And as you read it, you'll see that how he's very clever and played on words. Paul was good at wordplay. And so he said in verse 10 to 11, that short little book, I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, 
but now is profitable to you and me. Onesimus, the name means profitable. That's what it literally means. Profitable. That was his name. And so Paul was saying, he whose very name means profitable became unprofitable, but now, through the grace of God, has become profitable to you and to me. It's a wonderful story of redemption and grace and forgiveness. It's a wonderful story of how the potter can take the clay and make it again into another vessel. The Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 13. In fact, the last verse of Acts 12 and then into 13. So Acts 12 verse 25, the last verse. And Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. They also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. He was a nephew of Barnabas. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger. Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I had called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. And as you read on, you'll see that John Mark went with them. But when you get to verse 13, Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now I don't know why he did that. Some say he was homesick. Some say, well, he didn't feel he could cut it as a missionary evangelist. Uh, some say that he was lazy. Uh, some say he was not very courageous. That when he would get out there, he would realize how tough and how hard things would be. And how challenging the ministry would be. Uh, traveling with the Apostle Paul would not be easy. He went to the hard places. Uh, he went to places where Christ had not been preached. And so there was always difficulties that would ensue and, uh, and, and stonings and all kinds of stuff would happen. So some say because of all of those reasons and perhaps others we don't know, he just decided he would quit and give up and return home uh, to Jerusalem. Be that as may, whatever the reason was, that's what he did. And then as they too went on and ministered in chapter 15, They decided to make some return journey. See how the churches were getting on. And then after some days, verse 36 of Acts 15, then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with him John called Mark. 
But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted one from another. So Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, and Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Now, of course, Barnabas, this being his nephew, obviously felt a, something of a, a, an affinity with him, no doubt. Uh, but maybe wanted to give him another chance. But Paul was having none of it. Paul was quite hard-nosed. <laughs> he really was. You work with Paul. Uh, I remember one preacher in America telling me about a, uh, one of the big name preachers. And he said that uh, at one time he used to uh, be in his ministry. And I said, how long did you work, uh, work with him? And I said, you didn't work with him, you worked for him. <laughs> You worked for him, not with him. It was hard fire. Well, Paul was a bit like that. <laughs> so you're working for him, and if he didn't cut the mustard, you were gone. And really, he said, I don't want him. He failed. He went back. He's no good to me. He's useless. I can't afford a hanger-on. Whether it's your nephew or not, I just don't want him around me. That was his attitude. And the contention became so sharp between them that they parted company. And they began to partner. And Paul, of course, got Silas. And we see that Barnabas took John Mark. Now that would be sad if that was the end of the story, wouldn't it? But it isn't. And you know that it isn't. Because in 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul is the aged man now. He's about to become a martyr for the faith. He knows that his time is coming. He says in verse 6, I'm already, I'm already being poured out as a drink offering and so forth. And so he knows that his time is about to come to an end. And so he has a little bit of encouragement here. It says in verse 9, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, has departed from Thessalonica, and Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Only look as with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for the ministry. Ah. He who was useless has become useful. We don't know how that came about. Maybe Paul kept tabs on him. Maybe Paul, through his connection with Barnabas, maybe was getting better reports. Uh, maybe young John Mark had matured. Maybe he had gone on to do well, obviously had, to such a point that Paul was willing to say, listen, even though I believed he was useless back then, I believe he's useful today. And one fact, I want you to bring him with me. I want to see him here. I want to, him to be with me. What a turnaround. By the way, it was John Mark who wrote the beautiful gospel of Mark. Can I just add a little writer there? Did you notice whenever those first verses we read that it says that, and they took 
John Mark with them. But whenever you read into that next chapter, you'll see that the Holy Spirit said, separate me, Paul and Barnabas, for the ministry. He didn't say, separate me, Mark, for the ministry. It could be. Because sometimes we put the Apostle Paul on such a high pedestal, we almost make him infallible. And no man is infallible. He was a spiritual giant for sure. Outside of Christ, there's no greater man in the New Testament. But he's not infallible. And maybe somewhere along the journey, maybe young Mark maybe felt, do you know what? I'm not sure if this is my calling. I'm not sure if this is really what God's called me to. Many a man is in ministry today, but they're not in their calling. They're in ministry, but they're not in their calling. They're a square peg in a round hole. And maybe that's maybe what he felt and couldn't explain it. And Paul wasn't wanting to listen because Paul wanted helpers. But however it happened, at the end of the day, somewhere along the line, something happened to change Paul's mind. And he realized this man actually is very useful for the kingdom and he's useful to me. It was a cheapened vessel, but it became a chosen vessel. Verse 4, so he made it again into another vessel as it seemed good to the potter to make. He could have dumped it. He could have scrapped it. He could have thrown it away. That little tumbler I made, if I had been an apprentice in the Tyrone Crystal Factory, that never would have seen the light of day. It would have been thrown in a big bin and smashed and melted again. The potter could have scrapped it. But it seemed good for him to make it again into another vessel. He chose to give it another chance, to restore it, to renew it, to remake it. That poor woman caught in the very act of adultery. In the very act. Those Pharisees knew where she was, knew what she was up to, knew what she was up to and who with she was. Up to something. And they ran and they caught her and they dragged her through the streets right to the temple, right to the court of the woman that was thronging with hundreds and hundreds of people. And in front of all the crowd, they went over to Jesus and they flung her at his feet. And they demanded the law be enforced. She has committed adultery. The law says stone her. And the law did say stone her. It's interesting in that story. Where was the man in the story? Why did they not drag him? Because he was an adulterer. Why did they not drag him to the feet of Jesus? Probably because he was one of them, one of the Pharisees. Well, not labor the story because you know it so well. But you know that Jesus forgave that lady. You know that he said, let him without, the, be the, without sin cast the first stone. And from the eldest to the youngest, they all began to leave as he wrote on the ground. It's a wonderful story of redemption of grace woman where are your accusers no man accuse me Lord 
neither do I condemn you. The law condemned her. But Jesus came and preached grace. And that's what we're trying to catch him in. The law condemned her. But without accusers, the law couldn't condemn her. In the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. But not one of the accusers was able to stand the scrutiny of their own sin. And so they left. Neither do I condemn you. And then he says, go and sin no more. Didn't condone her. But he says, go and sin no more. And what a change must have been in that woman's life. She'd never be the same again. Bible doesn't say, but I doubt if she ever committed adultery again in her life. Such was the change that would have come in her life. Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdalene, out of whom Jesus cast seven devils. Now it's unfortunate that just about every preacher in the world has called her a prostitute, and the Bible never did. Never did call her a harlot or a woman of the night. That's an assumption that was made because she had seven devils. I was at a conference a couple of years ago and a pastor friend of mine actually got up and read a beautiful, beautiful poem about Mary Magdalene. But in the poem, it was assumed that she was a prostitute. But nowhere in the Bible says she was. It just said she had seven devils. She was a wealthy woman. Probably was a businesswoman. Well known in the town. But those dark forces that she had controlled her to a large degree. And we know throughout scripture that those who were possessed with dark forces manifested whatever those spirits were in their life, at some point or other, that would be manifested. Because when they take possession, that's what they do. They need a body to manifest themselves. And that's their aim. So whatever they were, from time to time, they would manifest in her life. And it would cheapen her. She was smart. She was rich. She probably was a businesswoman, but then she was cheapened by these evil forces in her life. But Christ came along, and he looks right into her eyes, and he casts those devils out of her. And her life was never the same. She became a devoted disciple of Christ. She was last at the cross. She was first at the tomb. Forget about Dan Brown and all that nonsense he wrote about becoming the wife of Jesus and all that blasphemous rubbish. She was just a devoted follower of Jesus. She had a cheapened vessel, but she became a chosen vessel. Apostle Paul called himself the chief of sinners. When he looked back and saw the hurt he had caused and the damage to the church, the early church, before he gets saved, he could come to no other conclusion. I am the chief of sinners. There is no greater sinner than I was. That was his testimony. 
Here was a smart, educated, religious man. If he was living today, he would be a top theologian, probably be a professor in some university or some great college. But he cheapened himself. He struck out against the church of Christ. But the Lord got a hold of him, didn't he? On the road to Damascus. And for a few days he was blinded. And God speaks to Ananias, a godly man, and tells him to go and lay hands on him. In Acts 9.15, but the Lord said to Ananias, go. He didn't want to go. He says, go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. He is a chosen vessel. This clay on the potter's wheel, it was a flawed vessel, but it became a favored vessel. The Bible is full of flawed men and women. I am looking at a church full of flawed men and women. You are looking at a flawed man speaking to you. We're all flawed, aren't we? Are you perfect? I don't think so. Am I? For sure, no. Ask my wife. She'll fill you in. Because she fills me in. <laughs> Tells me. Abraham lied about his wife. Boy, that got him into trouble, didn't it? Moses lost his temper. And actually, worse than that, he claimed God's power for himself. Remember the second time to get water out of the rock? God says, speak to the rock. What did he do? He did what he did before. He took the staff and he smote it. Never should have been hit the second time. And he says, must we fetch water out of this rock? You're a bunch of stiff-necked rebels. He was angry. But the angry spotty had that wasn't the thing that really was the worst it was about it was claiming God's power as he don't must we fetch water out of this rock as if he was the one he did in the first place David was a wonderful king he was a great musician he was the bravest soldier he was a poet but he was a poor father he was a terrible dad he really was. Read his family's history. What a mess. What a dysfunctional family. They were awful. Absalom, his own son, turned against him and tried to take his very throne from him and would have killed him. And you know what? David had to bear the blame of some of that because he did not handle him right. And he didn't treat him right. He was a poor father in spite of all the other things. He was a flawed man. He really was. Elijah, the Bible says, was a man of like passion such as we are. <laughs> Peter was rash and impulsive. James and John were racist. They were vindictive. They hated the Samaritans, wanted to call fire down from heaven and burn them up. <laughs> How would you like to have a pastor like that? Huh? Thomas was the doubter, wasn't he? But all of these flawed vessels became favored vessels. And God really got the hold of them. 
It was a worthless vessel that became a worthy vessel. Only God can make the worthless worthy. Only God and His grace can do that. A worthless vessel became a worthy vessel. Many a man or woman feels absolutely worthless, beyond redemption, hopeless, a no-hoper. But God can step in and totally turn their life around and make them a worthy vessel. If I was to ask for everybody's testimony in this room today, some of you would probably be shocked by what you would hear. You would wonder, and you would look at the person and say, I never would have imagined in a million years. And that's the grace of God, isn't it? Absolutely worthless. But God can make you worthy. A good friend of mine, he used to be in the car dealership business. He's now retired. He's the loveliest person you could ever hope to meet. A gentlest soul, kind, generous, loving, great father, great husband, wonderful believer, fine man of God. But he told me one time, he says, David, if you had known me before I got saved, he says, I would have embarrassed you in five seconds. I had such a filthy, foul mouth. He says, you would not have believed it. And I wouldn't have believed it. But he says, as soon as I got saved, the first thing God did was clean up my mouth. <laughs> he says, that was the first thing he did. It's wonderful what God could do. Anybody know Zig Ziglar? Zig Ziglar was the top sales, he just died recently, he was the top salesman in America. Brilliant salesman. One time he came to the Thrupney bit beside the King's Hall. That's that little building. And it, it, was a, it was an Amway talk he was giving. Remember, anybody remember Amway years ago? There's a few folk used to do Amway about. And they gave me a ticket to go. And I really didn't want to go because no interest in Amway or selling or anything. But they weren't long saved and they, they were involved in it. So I went along just to encourage them. I didn't know who Zig Ziglar was. Never heard from him, Adam. But I'm glad I went. They said, this is the top salesman in America. Come and hear him. So I went. And he got up. He must have spoke for about 40, 45 minutes. He hardly even mentioned Amway at all. He gave his testimony. How he got saved. How he met the Lord. How he became a tither. How he honors God. <laughs> it must have been embarrassing for a lot of those Amway people because most of them weren't believers. And I'm sitting there thinking, go ahead, brother, give it to them. <laughs> and here's what he said. He says, you know, I used to give talks like this when I was, you know, you know, because I was a leading salesman all over to all the big business execs and everything. And he says, he says, I was the filthiest mouth. I told the filthiest stories. And he says, they lapped it up and they clapped and cheered. And he says, then I got saved. And he says, God cleaned up my mouth. And you know what? He says, they all told me, nobody will be interested in you now. They not want you to give your talks. He says, well, so be it. I'm not going to speak that way anymore. Do you know what he says? I'm booked up two years in advance. <laughs> and he says, I never say a bad word. I never tell a, a bad story. I never say a bad joke. 
And he says, I honor God. And he says to all enemies, he says, you do the same. And God will honor you. <laughs> a worthless vessel becomes a worthy vessel. Failure need not be final. Do you hear me? Your flaw doesn't have to be your fate. If you're marred, you can be mended. That little piece of grit that goes into the oyster causes all kinds of problems, irritates the life out of it. But the oyster has got a way of turning that into something beautiful and precious that makes a pearl out of it. And God can take your flaw and he can mend you. And he can make you a new vessel to the glory of God. Amen. Let's pray.